we are continuing along in a series in which we've entitled Encounters with Jesus. And today we're looking at a well-known passage in John 4 where we see a woman who in every facet of life has been down and out, who has been marginalized, has been unseen. And she meets this wonderful man called Jesus, who Jesus himself says, I am the living water for you. And in that way, that's the metaphor for you and I today. Are you thirsty in life? Not just physically, but spiritually, emotionally. Are you craving something? Are you unsatisfied? Are you desperately looking for some sort of satisfaction in life? Because if you are, my guess is that you probably are, this message is for you too. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. The passage comes from John chapter 4, verses 7 to 26. I'll be preaching essentially from the entire chapter 4, but just for time's sake, I'll be reading verses 7 to 26. So this is God's Word. I pray that you'll be blessed with open hearts and open minds. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons, his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And this is God's word. You could take your seats at this time. Well, to kind of jump to the punchline, you have a woman who's thirsty. You have Jesus who metaphorically says, I could quench that thirst. Jesus ironically says, I'm thirsty. Can you give me a drink? And this encounter in what we look at in John 4 is a masterful work of art to see the greatest counselor, the greatest evangelist in Jesus in a gentle, loving, and savvy way engage in a conversation with a woman that no one else in society at that time wanted to talk to? How did he bring out her sin without being too jarring? How did he show her her need without being too critical or condemning? That's how Jesus does this. And he even says, you want living water, I'll give you living water in which you'll never thirst again, something that will spring up into eternal life. 
So he's pretty clear. He's saying, I'm talking about water, but really water's a metaphor for eternal life, something this woman wants and desperately needs. And so let's dialogue about this because essentially you have an encounter, and then you see that this encounter draw, drew a huge and life-changing impact upon this woman. So those are the two things that we see in this passage. There's a meeting, an encounter that changed her life. And then she goes out from Jesus, catapulted and propelled in a way that she is ultimately transformed from inside out. So let's look at this because I think on some level, you and I would be able to see ourselves in this woman because we are all thirsty, we are all needy, and we all want eternal life. So we'll look first at the encounter with Jesus, and then secondly, we'll look at the impact of that meeting. So an encounter with Jesus. Let me offer a couple of thoughts about this passage in terms of its context. You know, it sheds light on the type of people that Jesus wants to talk to and hang out with, the type of people that Jesus wants to engage, and for honest, the type of people that you and I may have a little bit of a challenge engaging with. Jesus, in his ministry, has been facing opposition in life. He's been teaching. The religious elite are criticizing him. They're challenging him. They're, they're, they're arguing with him. They're yelling at him. And because the opposition, the oppression got so deep and too difficult, he had to leave Judea, and he leaves, heads for Galilee. But verse 4 says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, it makes it sound like Jesus, on his journey, had no choice but to go through Samaria. That's really important because if he's on his way to Galilee but passes through Samaria, it tells you that Jesus was missional, he was intentional. There's a reason for that. And the reason, friends, is not because it was the fastest route. The reason is because he went to Samaria to meet this woman that no one else wanted to meet, to engage in. Fastest route was not his objective. To seek a sinner, a person who's hurting, someone who potentially could be a Christian and worshiper, that was Jesus' heart. That was his mission. And we learned so much about this Samaritan woman that Jesus had to meet in Samaria. A Samaritan woman revealed to us in verse 7. The setting reveals that there's something particular and distinct about this woman. Now think about this with me. If you could imagine the New Testament times and looking at this conversation, you imagine yourself as this woman. The first thing to notice is that verse 6 says is that she's getting water at the well at the sixth hour. That's most likely 12 noon. That's the hottest time of the day. If you're getting water and you're carrying that buckets of water back to your home, you either go in the morning when it's cool or in the evening. The reason she's going in the sixth hour is because most likely she wanted to go when there was no one around, where there are no crowds. Most women also went together because there's safety in numbers. She's by herself. She knew that she was a solo artist. She knew that she had to go by herself. She was avoiding the culture, society, and community. So she goes by herself, and she goes at the hottest point in the day. That's very telling. We automatically know that she's probably not respected. She's marginalized. She's ostracized. She's condemned. She's been used. She knows that she's an outsider of outsiders. And friends, that's interesting because that's exactly who Jesus came to see. Had oppression, condemnation, execution perhaps from the Pharisees. Jesus says, too much. I'm going to go to Galilee, home base. I'm going to pass through Samaria because there's this woman who's drawing water at noon by herself. 
because no one else wants to be with her. Now, Jesus being fully human, it's interesting. He goes to this woman in a savvy way. He goes to this woman and says, hey, I'm thirsty. Are you able to give me a drink? And she asks, he asks a Samaritan woman. And what does she say in verse 9 as a response? He, she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? Because Jews and Samaritans, they didn't like each other. There's a bad history between them. See, this is what I'm trying to say, friends. Jesus is breaking all the cultural boundaries and rules here. He's crossing all the boundaries that no one else back in the day did. He was radical. He was aggressive. He was faithful. He was loving. He was missional. He was full of compassion in his heart. So what were these cultural boundaries? Well, let's look at a couple of them. First, as I said, Jews and Samaritans never talked. There were two nations and countries that were rivals. They had a bad history in 722 BCE. They, the Syrians invaded Samaria. Most of the Israelites were exiled. And then the only people that were left were the poor Israelites. And then the Assyrians married them to make them an intermarriage and an interbreed because that's their way to dominate the culture. They would take the poor people, the marginalized people, and then they would marry them so that they could lose our own culture. So they had different worship sites, different ethnicities, different rabbis, different kinds of cultural expression. So they didn't like each other. The Samaritans thought that the Israelites were elitists. The Israelites thought the Samaritans were compromisers. They hated each other. It led to years of intense conflict between their holy sites. But in their, any respect, whatever rabbi, whatever issue, whatever time period, the Samaritans were never viewed in positive light by Jews, by the Israelites. But this is exactly the type of person that Jesus went to. So not only was it ethnic and cultural and religious boundaries, but Jesus also, in talking to this woman, he transcended and he crossed moral boundaries. We see this in verses 17 to 18. He says in this winsome way, show me your husband. She says, I don't have one. Jesus says, you're actually right. No, he knew that. He's drawing it out. He's bringing her sin out. You've had five husbands, and the guy that you're staying with now isn't even your partner. So she's considered an adulterer. She's a prostitute, perhaps. She's a woman that everyone knew is a person who slept around. Now, this is interesting because if she had five divorces, and the man she's living with right now isn't even her husband, and she's also a Samaritan, in their moral, cultural boundaries... You never talk to someone like this because that woman is beneath you. But Jesus engages in conversation. In fact, it was so patriarchal back then, but you couldn't even have a woman talk to a man. That's the third boundary that Jesus transcends. Not just the moral one, but the gender ones. Jesus is talking to a woman, one-on-one. -on -one. They didn't do that back then. It was probably offensive to people who read about this and saw this. A stranger who is a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman who's known to be promiscuous and slept around, he never actually saw this. That was unheard of. This was the most offensive account to a Pharisee who's looking at this. This is why people wanted to kill Jesus, because he kept doing this all the time. He would talk to tax collectors and prostitutes and lepers, and now he talks to a woman who had five husbands who's mixed breed at the hottest time of the day at 12 o'clock, one-on-one as a Jewish man. And you know why Jesus did this? Because Jesus... Love this woman. Jesus wanted to engage this woman. He was other-centered. His eyes were wide open. He was looking for people that you and I don't want to talk to. 
Now, the theologian Augustine, St. Augustine, now sometimes they say Augustine, but Augustine is in Florida, Augustine is in heaven. So Augustine once said this famous phrase, sin causes us to curve in ourselves. And if you're honest, that's you and me. We curve in ourselves, our world, our preferences. Samaritan woman's of the day, yeah, we're not going to talk to them, you know, let the other churches, other people do that. But sin causes us to curve in ourselves. The gospel causes our hearts to curve out. That's why in our relationships, oftentimes we invest in people who are just like us, who make us happy, who make us feel good, who laugh at our jokes, who are in the same socioeconomic bracket and tax bracket that we are. Sin causes us to curve in ourselves. But Jesus shows us that in his power, he opens up the kingdom to everyone. And so what's the point of all this? The point I'm trying to make is this. God wants us to worship him, and Jesus' heart for worshipers, he casts out all the preconceived notions of the world, and he reaches after the desperate and the needy. So here's an interesting point. The point is that Jesus wants all kinds of people to come to him, And you're thinking Jesus just wants the poor people or the hurting people or the marginalized people. Absolutely true, but this is the thing. You remember last week when Pastor Paul gave a wonderful message on John 3? Do you remember who Jesus talked to in John 3? It wasn't a Samaritan woman. It wasn't a marginalized. It was actually someone who was in the upper class. It was someone who was in the upper echelons of the social caste of the New Testament time, Nicodemus. Nicodemus was the guy we all want to be. Nicodemus is the guy that we all want to marry. So I think John wrote this gospel, and he says, look at John chapter 3 and look at John chapter 4. You have Nicodemus, who is elite, and then you also have the Samaritan woman who is down and out. And I think think John is saying that's Jesus' heart. He wants the Pharisees, but he also wants the prostitutes, because everyone apart from Jesus is so far and has a long distance between them and salvation. Nicodemus was someone who had it all, respect, honor, dignity, And I think John advised us to contrast this, and you'll see yourself maybe in both. Nicodemus, he approaches Jesus and initiates a conversation with Jesus. The Samaritan woman, Jesus approaches the Samaritan woman and initiates conversation with her. Jesus, Nicodemus, comes under the cover of night because a lot of times when you want to protect your wealth and your reputation, you do it in secret. So he comes to Jesus in the darkness of night. Jesus goes to the Samaritan woman in the hottest, broadest part of the daylight. Nicodemus' faith was really ambiguous. I'm not sure if he really became saved. He's contemplating. He's skeptical. He's, he's processing. But the Samaritan woman's response was firm and stronger. After she became saved, she went back to the town who marginalized her and said, look at me. I met the man that you guys need to meet. There's such a different contrast here, but what John is saying and what we need to hear in the point of The first point of encounter is that whether you're Nicodemus or the Samaritan woman, either way, you are marginalized and far and ostracized from the Savior until you come to him and repent and embrace Jesus Christ for yourself. Jesus does not seek worshipers on the basis of gender, tax bracket, culture, morality, achievements, LinkedIn accounts, resumes. He looks at worshipers across the spectrum because he wants all worshipers and people to come to him because we all need him. That's the encounter. Can you deal with it? 
That's the question. Can you deal with it? You know, can you, get, can you lose your love in the Samaritan woman because you found your husband in Jesus? Can you lose your riches like Nicodemus because you are rich beyond mild imagination in Christ? Can you deal with that radical call, that radical conviction, that radical conversion, that transformation that comes in the personal work of Jesus Christ for you? Can you deal with it? Can you respond to it? Friends, he will blow your mind away. Just give him a chance. He will take your breath away if you just give him a chance. And that leads us to our second point. Look at the impact on this woman. Look at verses 28 to 29. I didn't read these verses, but as I said, I'm going to preach on the whole chapter. After this woman sees who Jesus is, what did she do? Verses 28 to 29. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now, it's interesting. You don't waste any words when you write the Bible because back then it's expensive. Only educated could write. So when you notice that little phrase there, so the woman left her water jar. Why would that be so important? Because it shows this symbolically, visually, if you're a visual learner, this woman is physically thirsty, comes with her need in a jar, and she realizes that she had a greater need met in Jesus, who's a living water, so she leaves her jar, so it's a symbol, it's a metaphor to say she left what she thought she needed because in Jesus, she found what she really needed. She left her empty jar because she went out back to the town and said, come and see a man. He knew everything that I did. Verse 28 is sort of like a scene of the movie where if you can imagine just watching through the camera, if you're a director, you see this interaction, and after the woman sees Jesus as living water, she drops her water jar, maybe it made a sound and a clunk, fell to the ground, rolled over to the side, she runs off, and then the camera comes back to the jar and zooms in. A close-up on the jar that's empty. Didn't she want water from the well? She got living water of eternal life from Jesus. That's what the story shows us. That's the impact. See, isn't it ironic how in verse 29, it shows us this woman evangelized. Now imagine this woman, place herself into her. Everyone knows that you've had five husbands. Everyone knows that you sleep around. Everyone knows that you're promiscuous. Everyone knows and views you as being below them, dirty, unclean. This woman who's known to be someone who has a lot of people and a lot of men, all of a sudden, after she meets this man named Jesus, goes back in 29, verse 29, to the crowd that knows that she's actually promiscuous and says, come and see a man. Now think of that situation. What would you see? Okay, this is the woman that sleeps around. This is the woman that seems to engage in physical intimacy with anyone that she meets. She's looking for love, looking for comfort, looking for something in her heart. And now she's coming out publicly, come and see a man. Of course, you probably first think, come and see a man. Another one? Is this number seven? Come and see a man. Give me a break. Go back to your sins. Go back to your town. Go back to the dirty part of the world so that I don't have to worry about you. But that's not what the woman does. That's not how she's thinking. She didn't have fear of man. She didn't care about her identity and culture and society. She's like, I met the living water. There's a transformation here. She left her jars, and then she went out to proclaim the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ. It tells us that she was radically transformed from the inside out. Friends, a simple question here. Do you have 
empty jars in your life to show that similar kind of transformation? What are the empty jars of your life? Things that you thought you needed, but you realized they were only a shadow of what you can ultimately find in Jesus. Do you have empty jars in your life? Do you have things that you thought you wanted and you found out that you found something deeper and greater in Christ? Do you have empty jars to show for yourself a transformation? Now, John is one of my favorite theologians because in the Gospel of John, he's a brilliant writer. You know, he's, you know, he's like the millennial author. You know, he's, he's different from the other three. <laughs> he has a high Christology. He's metaphorical. He's poetic. And his gospel is written to show the glory and the splendor of Jesus that can meet all of our needs so that we could show our empty jars in life. Now think about this with me. John highlights Jesus as the main character, the mover and shaker. The woman doesn't even have a name. She's only understood by her foreignness and her sin. Even in verse 29, she says, Come and see a man who told me all that he ever did. She proclaims who Jesus is. He's a prophet, knows everything. But for the woman, all she ever knew of herself was her sin. Her identity was being low class. Jesus says in verse 9, she says to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And I like to think that Jesus maybe answered this question, if I could be as bold, Jesus may have said in some ways to the Samaritan woman in response to verse 9, I know that the world tells me I'm not supposed to like you, but I'm telling you in my heart from the kingdom I came here because I love you. The woman enters the scene in secrecy and in shame. Jesus reveals her sin, gives her living water so that she goes out in public confidence and declaration. Can you have a radical impact with Jesus here? Do you know that he meets every need that you have? Some of you are lonely, and Jesus understands and sees that. Some of you are grieving. Some of you feel like a failure. Some of you feel frustrated. Some of you struggle with depression and loneliness and anxiety. Some of you feel like you're not as good as other people in the world and in this church. All of us have that. I have that too. We all kind of have similar struggles like that. And what Jesus is saying, I see it. I'm not discounting that. But I'm telling you, my empathy will speak into this and help you to walk out of that if you believe that I am the living water. Show me your empty jars. A deep need in your heart that you want to be satisfied in this world, but you finally found it in Jesus Christ. Well, I think I shared this before at the youth retreat. Now, one time I looked up years ago when I read the last comic strip of Charlie Brown and Charles Schultz, and he said this is his last one in the, on public. So I kind of Googled Charlie Brown. I was like, what was the rationale of Charlie Brown? Yeah, I never really understood him. You know, as a kid, he has a lot of friends, but he seems kind of depressed, always seems to fail. Why is he bald, like even though as a kid? I, don't, I never understood that. And on a serious note, I wonder if he had, um, like, cancer or he was sick. You know, what, what's the story? And one article said that Charlie Brown actually is supposed to be every man's need, a cultural expression, every man's need. And in one article during Valentine's, Charlie Brown just wants a Valentine. He gets rejected by every girl. And he just says in the last scene, I just want a Valentine. I just want to be loved. 
I just want to be accepted. One of his nemesis, Lucy, at one comic strip said, I don't know what happiness is, but when I look in your eyes, I know it's not there. <laughs> Charlie Brown. You and I are Charlie Browns, friends. I just want a Valentine. I just want to be loved. I want to be seen. I want to be respected. I'll be honest, I can relate to Lucy because sometimes when I talk to people in this church, I may not know what happiness is, but when I look in your eyes, I feel that it's not really there. Sometimes I see dollar signs. Sometimes I see a twinkle in your eye for aspirations. Sometimes I see gray. Sometimes I look in the mirror and I see that in myself. Jesus can impact you in all the Charlie Browns in this world if you give him a chance. Let me end on this. As we come to the last turn of the sermon and come to the direction of the finish line. The Apostle John, as I said, is sort of like the millennial writer. He likes to use double words, words with double meaning. And for our passage, thirst has a double meaning. Thirst means physical thirst, but also spiritual thirst. Thirst has a double meaning, meaning that you are physically thirsty, but you spiritually need to be redeemed and to be saved and to be whole again. Jesus is using the woman's natural thirst to reveal to her her deeper need for spiritual redemption, a spiritual drink, reconciliation, acceptance, approval. Jesus engages in the discussion of five husbands, not as a random topic, but Jesus' masterful counseling to intentionally drive the discussion to the woman's ultimate sin that she in her heart is looking for love. And Jesus says, I'll be your husband. Your urgent need, friends, isn't your, always your deepest need. It's interesting to note that Jesus comes to a foreign land and meets a woman at the well. Did you know the well is one of the most romantic sites in all the Bible? Some of the greatest historical marriages happened at a well throughout the Bible. In Genesis 24, Abraham's servant and Rebekah meet at a well, and it ends in marriage. In Genesis 29, Jacob and Rachel, they meet at a well, and it ends in marriage. In Exodus 2, Moses and Zipporah, they meet at a well, and it ends in marriage. And all those meetings at the well, ending in marriage, is supposed to point to the final climactic, the deepest and the once-for-all marriage that you and I will ever need when we meet Jesus at the well in John chapter 4. He fulfills all that. Everything else was the pre-show. He's the main attraction. Jesus, in a fuller, more climactic way, goes to a foreign land, meets a woman at the well, unites her to himself by faith, says, I'll fill your deepest heart for love because I'm going to give you something that goes beyond this, and I'm going to redeem your thirst for redemption. What the woman couldn't find in five husbands, she found fully and finally in the bridegroom of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you and I would do this as well. The things of the world are good. We should enjoy them, but they're not going to be your husband at the well. He's our living water. The beauty of the passage is that in the Gospel of John, when Jesus actually dies upon the cross, he's the only gospel as a millennial writer that talks about what Jesus says on the cross. And do you know what he says? It's not just that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus died on the sin, do you know what Jesus said in chapter 19, verse 21, 28? Jesus says when he dies for your sin and mine, I 
thirst. Like I said, John loves double meanings and words. Jesus, in uniting himself to the Samaritan woman, in uniting you to himself, is telling us that on the cross, I'm going to take your thirst upon me. I'm going to take your sins, your need for redemption, your desires for love and acceptance, reconciliation, wholeness. He's going to take all your brokenness and all your failures, and he says, I'm going to take that on myself when I die for your sins, and I'm going to thirst on your behalf, and in my resurrection, I'm going to be a waterfall that pours into your heart so that you could be finally, fully, and climatically filled with the living water of Jesus Christ. And if you take a drink, just a little sip, it will be like this woman. You'll leave the empty jars of your life, go out into the world, both in word and deed, your money, your resources, your position at work. Come and see a man. Come and see this guy. His name is Jesus. You'll be bold. You'll be confident. You'll be collected. You could take criticisms, but still move forward. You could take rejection, but still befriend people because he tasted living water. And that's what Christianity is about. That's how he can engage the world who doesn't believe in him. There's this comedian who does a magician, a magic show over in, in Vegas, and he's, he's known in, I've never seen it, but I heard it's a really good show, um, Penn and Teller, but one of, the, one of the characters, one of the people of the group, Penn Gillette, 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 Penn Gillette says this, he's not a believer. But he says this about Christians. He says, if you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, and atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. He says, I don't respect that at all. At least he's intellectually honest. He says, if you really believe this, he's saying, I don't believe this, but if Christians really believe this, you met this li the living water, Jesus Christ, but you're saying, oh, I don't want to be offensive, and I don't want to make it socially awkward. I don't want to lose this connection. I don't want to lose my promotion at work. I get it. You need wisdom. You can learn how to be wise and savvy like Jesus Christ in the conversation. But Penn, has to make a, he makes a great point. He says, if you really believe that you have the key between heaven and hell and eternity, but you're not willing to share it, he says, I don't respect that at all. This Samaritan woman saw the beauty and the grandeur of the gospel, recognizes her need and sins were met in Jesus, even she, in a harder context that maybe we are in, goes out into the world, does exactly what Penn says not to do, come and see a man. So I pray, friends, for you and me, before we could be like this, I pray that you would see Jesus for himself and for yourself to consider the empty jars of your life, to see the living water that Jesus thirsts on behalf of you and be so taken aback and your breath so taken away that you go out into the world and in your actions, your love, your witness, come and see a man. His name is Jesus Christ. Friends, let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much because... Jesus is wise, he's loving, he's compassionate, Jesus is smart, and Jesus thirsted on our behalf to meet all our needs and all our insecurities and brokenness and failures 
and uncertainties, and Jesus did this for the glory of the Heavenly Father, for the redemption of the people he loved. I pray for each and every one of us in this room that we would be able to see Jesus with full clarity and to receive him and to grow in him and to love him as he first loved us. Thank you so much for this time as we continue to worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.